You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Amen, church family. I think we all are blessed, aren't we? Blessed with a great time of worship. Appreciate our worship team every Sunday taking the time to prepare and to always give God glory due to his name. What a great service it's been, and I hope that you and the Lord have had an amazing time just seeking, seeking him and uh, knowing him more. I want to tell you again, as you've already heard it announced as well, that Pastor Capacey's on vacation, and uh, we thank God for he and his family, and I know they're enjoying some time away. And so we've been in the Gospel of Mark now for a few weeks, and I want to just pick up where he left off. So I ask you to open your Bibles with me to... Mark chapter 4. Go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles with you. And we will get into what this next section of Mark's gospel talks about and uh, very heavily addresses the area of the kingdom of God. Let's go before the Father right now. Would you join me in prayer? Let's ask for his blessing on our time. Father, we bow in your presence and know that you are more than willing to meet with us now. We open your word to you and ask for your help to understand and to apply and that God you would be given glory in our obedience. So Lord, take this time I pray and use it for your glory and speak to our hearts lost and saved, to everyone present that Lord Jesus you are the centerpiece and the hero of this service and we pray this in your name. Amen. I'm probably uh, safely assuming that I am in the company probably of many of you who have children or you have uh, nieces, nephews, grandchildren. And there's probably something very common that all of us would know about small children is that a lot of them love to draw. They love to color and they like to be engaged in that. I know whenever our children, Jillian and I, when our children draw us in any kind of way, I get humbled every time. How about y'all? You know what I'm talking about, right? I look nothing like that. I may have been in the French Revolution the way that looks like, Abigail. But what I'm saying is, is that it is what it is. And when a child draws and conveys a picture, there's one thing that we kind of probably would understand and get well. And that is really, they don't really just draw in color for the activity itself. But go a little further beyond that, what we will quickly find out is that they want you to see a picture of what they are trying to reveal. It's far greater than just the activity. It's kind of like the guy walking by a little boy and he noticed that he was drawing a picture and when he said something to him and he said, what are you drawing? And the young man said, sir, I'm drawing a picture of God. The man began to laugh about it. He said, hey, that's great, but I'm gonna tell you, you can't draw a picture of God because God, nobody knows what God looks like. And the boy looked up at the guy with his raspy voice and confidence in his eyes. And he said, mister, they will when I get through. <laughs> it's, he, he knew he was going to make that picture clear. But let me tell you, when it comes down to who we are as professing, born-again Christians for those present that are, let's, let's go ahead and establish something that's paramount and necessary. And this is what it would be. At the end of every day for a Christ follower, it should have been our goal by the end of that day 
using our words and our actions to draw a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ so lost people can see the picture clearly. That's what we're up against. That's what we're looking to. And right now, I want to encourage you to think upon those terms. And if anybody needs a worship guide as well, you can put up your hands and we'll make sure that one's provided for you. But as we get into that and focus together on those essentials and on those things that this is talking about, let's get into think about what kind of picture am I drawing with my words and actions every day? I love the way Leslie Newbegin made a statement about that. Here's, here's what he said. Live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. That's the manifestation of the kingdom that we're needing. And here's where we are. Why is it that we emphasize this? Why is it that drawing a picture of the gospel by word and action is so important? What, what, what exactly is it that drives that all the time? Here's one thing we can conclude about that answer. And it's simply this. It's because heaven is not the home for someone who's not a Christian. Hell is. The reality is that somebody we look at, talk with, conversate with is an eternal being. And they will be in a place called heaven or a place called hell. And, it, and it's a consuming thought in the mind of a Christian when they interact with people all the time. And the reason why that's important is because people born into this world are born into sin, they're born lost, and that's why Jesus would make the statement that he told Zacchaeus in Luke 19, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That is the mission of Jesus Christ. And if that is the mission of Christ, then that is to be the mission of his church, right? That's where we are to go. That, that's become priority to the church. So all Christians should be on mission daily with the gospel of Christ in their life to get it out to others. Indian philosopher Gandhi made a statement a long time ago in observation of Christianity. And here's what he said. He said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians because your Christians are not like your Christ. And the thing that we've got to be reminded of is that if we live out the gospel in such a way and the kingdom of God goes out from our lives, then no lost person ever should have to take a guess in our lives as to where Jesus Christ stands as king of our hearts. It should never be a guess. And what we aim today, as we study and look into these things, life on earth for every human being is a kingdom crisis. It's either that they belong to the kingdom of this world or they belong to the kingdom of our God. But everyone is a part of one of two kingdoms. And that's exactly what we see here with our Lord Jesus. As we go into this and understand, let's go ahead and give a backdrop a little bit to better grasp why the kingdom of God is the subject. Historically speaking, the only kingdom during the New Testament era that our New Testament was being penned and written and recorded by God, his Holy Spirit, is the Roman Empire back in that day and time 
had, inf- had, had heavily consumed the entire geography of that region. Much of what we know in the New Testament, even with Christ on the cross, is a Roman guard. We see Roman era has entered in. And so what we realize from that is that it was a tremendously growing empire during New Testament times. Because during that time, under Roman control, Caesar or Caesars would go into new territories. They would send their armies in and they would totally ransack, take control over that city, that area, and they would Romanize it. What I mean by that is they would bring in by controlling the whole city, its government, its powers. They would infuse Roman arts, Roman literature, education, Roman temples, and worship. And they would do it for one reason. It was because when they took dominating control of a city, it was more than just a military thing. They were intending to make sure they Romanized the entire colony of that area of Rome so that they could make it adjustable for Caesar when he would visit that specific territory. And the point of that is that whether he was 300 miles from Rome or in this certain area, it could feel like he was at home. And that's why they did it. So when Jesus shows up in the New Testament and he has all these crowds and these disciples, they have been discipled by their culture before they were ever discipled by Jesus. Jesus was up to having to face the fact that they had a military, political kingdom mind to think about the things of the world. They didn't understand anything spiritual in this term. All they knew was that. So when Jesus shows up and he is being known as the king of the Jews, they are hopeful that Jesus is going to now show up as their new king, is going to overthrow the Roman Empire, and then set up Israel to be free from that so the Jewish people can now have Christ as their king and set up a political kingdom. That's not the way he had in mind. In fact, what we read in the scripture is that Jesus takes 12 regular guys like you and I, and he calls them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he sets up, instead of a political kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. In fact, this is what we find the whole point of when Jesus is looking at Pilate as he's going to go to the cross. He says in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate, it's not what you think it looks like. I've got a different kingdom I'm setting up. That's why when we pray in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, and we remember in verse 10 when we get to that part of it where he says, when you pray in this manner, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, the point of that prayer is that that is what my and your responsibility is to the kingdom of God. God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It is is our way of being able to say, God, you want your kingdom manifested on earth. You want your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. It's the point of reference for a Christian where it grips us. It shakes us to the core. It makes us realize with fear and trembling and humility that, man, I have a responsibility as a witness to Christ, as a bearer of his name. I am responsible with his gospel as a steward, as a manager. And I am a part of going out in my world, my culture, my family, my town. And whatever I do, the kingdom of God 
is to be manifest through me. As a Christian, that's my responsibility. And so salt is here to preserve holiness. Light exposes darkness. Truth tears down lies. We want to reflect as much of heaven on earth as we possibly can by Christ living through us. I love the way Cornell West said it. If the kingdom of God is within you, you should leave a little bit of heaven wherever you go. And that's what it's all about. How many of y'all like glitter? I didn't think so, all right? If you're familiar with glitter, if you ever had a, a child or somebody give you glitter and it had a crayon, a package or something like that, how many of you know that 10 loads of laundry later in three weeks, you still got glitter somewhere? Yes, I have people that understand this. But you know, when you're gonna live for the kingdom of God, that's exactly what it looks like. It's like, as you go everywhere you go, you do whatever you do, and your goal, your, your, your goal always is to leave a deposit, a piece, a seed, plant, sow, reap, whatever. But you're always sensitive to the gospel of Christ within you and accountable to the human being you're interacting with. There's something you want to say. You've only got three seconds. You've got three minutes. You may have an hour. Whatever you've got, you say, God, I'm giving you what I've got. I'm going to deposit the kingdom. I want this person to know as we've crossed paths today, and I may never see him again, that before God, my last encounter is I had something to give them of the gospel, of the kingdom, with whatever little I had to work with. That's the mindset. The mindset is God's people would live for the kingdom and it wouldn't be like a light switch you could turn off and on. It wouldn't be compartmentalized into a mission trip. It wouldn't be desensitized into an activity. It would be the lifestyle of the Christian to always be thinking of the kingdom of God within them and manifesting that. It's something done 24 seven, it's a lifestyle. It's a heart change. It's the gospel within you. This is what Mark chapter four is all about. The kingdom of God is here in the presence of Jesus, in the person of Christ, those whom he saves. It's not that kingdom is future, thinking of going to heaven one day and being in God's kingdom. This is true, but he's saying, no, I want my will done on earth as it is in heaven. I want my kingdom manifested now. So great is this truth that he would say in Luke 17, 21 to the disciples, the kingdom of God is within you. In Matthew 6, he would say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. In Romans 14, he would tell us very quickly, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking like a party, but it's righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 12, the writer of Hebrews would say these words, since you are receiving a kingdom, which cannot be shaken. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Yes. So where we are today, it's like Jack C. Lewell put it, Christians were never meant to be normal. We've always been holy troublemakers. You know why? Because we do not accept the world as it is. But instead, we insist on the world becoming what God wants it to be. That's the reason why the kingdom of God is different from the kingdom of this world and the patterns of this world. 
And so to illustrate these things, to understand the difference of the kingdom, we are brought to our attention here in Mark 4. The difference between the two kingdoms is brought out in the form of parables. And what this means is that the parables are what Jesus now chooses to launch off into from what we've already covered in Mark chapter 1, 2, and 3. Now in chapter 4, the scenery changes. The context gets a little different. Matthew or Mark is now moving us in this direction where Jesus starts teaching through parables to illustrate his kingdom. He wants the kingdom manifested and known. So we get these parables. And this word parable is a word that just means to cast something alongside. So a parable is a story placed alongside the truth of God to bring the listener to intersection with response to God's truth in his or her life. That's it. So when somebody hears a parable, they don't walk away just going, well, that was a good story. I appreciate it. I enjoyed that. No, no, no. The, the agenda of God behind a parable is to say, I'm going to give you a story you can relate to, something that you're used to on earth, but I've got my kingdom truth infused in that story application. And I want to make sure, and he makes sure that the listener intersects with God over his truth in the story to be able to say, what is this speaking to their life? And that's where we are in this. Chapter 4 is loaded with parables. And so as we examine ourselves today to grow in the likeness of Christ, according to our series, that's our goal. How today do we dive into these parables and grow in the likeness of Christ. How do we take away the parable to look more like Christ? Well, as a Christian, the kingdom of God is the subject and the bloodline running through these parables. This is what Christ is manifesting to us. And we wanna dive in and we wanna be responsible with the kingdom of God as illustrated through the parables. Let's do that. I wanna give you here five actual motivations, kingdom motivations, that we get from this for everyday life. How do I leave church today motivated with the kingdom of God for my everyday life? For all of my conversations I'm gonna have for the rest of the day and into the week. For the people I meet at the store, the cashiers I talk to, the folks in a doctor's office. How do I make sure the kingdom of God through the gospel is going out in my conversation so that I don't just shut down and not share these things throughout the week. I wanna make sure I'm sensitive to that. Matthew, Mark brings it out here very clearly to us. So let's look at motivation number one. Motivation number one is this, announce the discovery of the treasure. Your treasure, announce the discovery of the treasure. And here's the reason why we say it is treasure. Everybody look with me, if you would, at verse 33. Here's what he says. This is toward the end of the passage. We're going to kind of go this direction first. He would speak the word to them with many parables like these, as they were able to understand. And he did not speak to them without a parable. Privately, however, he would explain everything to his own disciples. Ah. Now take that and go with me right over here to verse 10. Look what he says. And when Jesus was alone with the 12, that's the 12 disciples, those who were around Jesus asked him about the parables. 
He answered them. Listen to what he says. The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those outside, everything comes in parables. So that they may look and look and not perceive, yet not perceive. They may listen and listen, yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. Wow. So in this parable is a setting, or in this, in this explanation of the parable, there is a setting. And the announcement, what motivates the believer here is to contrast a couple of things. Notice the two different kinds of people. Verse 11 says, you have the disciples. And then you have, as he says here, those who are outside. This is referring to people who are not disciples. They're not Christians. They're unbelievers. They need to be saved by Jesus. Jesus says here very clearly the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of of this, what he's given to them, is actually that the kingdom of God has come to you and I in human experience through God's one and only son, Jesus Christ. And the mystery, the secret of this is that this has never happened before throughout all the Old Testament prophets. So this, he says to the disciples, you have been given the secret to the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom. You have been given this, but not everybody has. And the responsibility then is there to put it into application. So what we have here is that when these parables go out, you have the Christians, then you have those who are outside, non-Christians. And this is what a parable does in a twofold way. It is either used to reveal truth to those who want to know the truth, or it's used to conceal truth from those who reject it. It's one of the two. So when a parable goes out, Jesus would speak and preach the parable, and he would use the story with God's truth mixed in, and there would people listen to that. Those who were seeking the Lord were drawn in more and more through the parable. Those who weren't interested in the Lord Jesus Christ would hear a story and walk away and reject it. To some, it was revealed. To others, it was concealed. And in that big picture there, we find ourselves in the mix of this. And here's what it is. He says to the disciples, hey, everybody out here is lost. All these people don't know me. But I gave you the secret of the kingdom. I gave you what you need to make this known to them. So 2 Corinthians 4, 7 makes sense. It says, for we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. This treasure is within. In Matthew 13, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. That's hidden in a field that a man found, and then he hid it again. And, for, and, and then he goes and sells everything he has for joy over that treasure, and he buys the field. It's a, it's a treatment of a realization here that this is what it comes down to. The treasure that I have and you have, if you know Christ, is the gospel. This is the greatest treasure, amen? It's, it's that, this is no joke. This isn't about memorization. This isn't, this isn't about formality and convenience and five steps to this. This is about the fact that keep it simple, y'all. Keep it simple. 
The death and the resurrection of Christ is to be presented to a world that needs to know what he's done and who he is. Pastor Brian is a man that I served alongside when I was in the northern part of the U.S. planting churches. We were in North Illinois planting churches all over that area. And Pastor Brian and I became very close while we worked on staff together there. He told me one time when he was in Uganda, he was preaching in a crusade. He had a unique situation happen during the midst of the service. The church is crowded. There's nowhere to sit, not even in the windows. A man walks in the very back. When he walks in, he has a very unusual behavior. And what he's doing is he's, he's, he's looking around. He's trying to find a spot. He gets settled and he does this. He reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a piece of paper. And he starts to handle the paper with great delicacy. Slowly, he's pulling this out and pulling this out. And next thing you know, it's covering up his hands, laying there. And he's sitting there like this in the service, listening to the pastor and reading the paper. Listening, reading. When the service was over, the pastor was just baffled what exactly the man was doing. It didn't make any sense to him. So ironically, he was able to locate the man in the crowd after the service ended, with, in spite of the masses, he found him. The translator was next to him. He brought him up and he said, come here. He came next to him and he said to him, what is this that you were doing in the service with the paper? What is this? And the man began to weep. He pulled it back out again. And I mean, with just tears streaming down, the translator began to cry. He realized what this guy had. It was a torn piece of one of the chapters in the book of Isaiah. And it was a torn piece in half of one of the books, or the Isaiah book of the chapter, and he had it in his hand. And it was the only Bible he had. So this man had the word of God and he treated it with such treasure and delicacy and realized what he had, that he couldn't believe that he could be in church and worship and have this word to go off of, even though it was only a fragment of what the whole Bible would be. Wow. Do you know by the end of that week, Pastor Brian was able to get the man a Bible in his language, entire Bible. And he was able to give it to him. And when that happened, Pastor Brian said the man collapsed on the ground in the dust and wept and worshiped God over what he had been given. You see, that's the kind of stuff that when a heart has been changed by Christ and gripped by the Spirit of God, that's the treasure we have. When we go out every day, a Christian looks at the world and says, today, Lord, I'm on mission. Today, your kingdom come. Lord, today, use your servant for your glory. Today, I have the treasure that people who are in darkness don't have. I can give away. In every conversation I have, some deposit with whatever time I'm given of the kingdom. Amen. The goal and the mindset is there. I love the way John Wesley said it. He said, give me 100 men who only love God with all their heart and only hate sin with all their heart. And we'll shake the gates of hell and we'll bring in the kingdom of God in one generation. That's confidence. See, for those who are not... Verse 12 made it clear. In verse 12, when Jesus said, those who are outside, I got to speak to them in parables. Because they'll look and look and not listen. They'll, and then he goes at the very end, he says, otherwise they might turn back and be forgiven. 
It's Jesus' way of saying basically to us, people who hear these parables that are outside or lost without Christ, they don't want to turn from sin. If they would repent, they would be saved and forgiven. But they don't want to. That leads us to the second parable. The second parable or the parable here that we're going to dive into to understand this specific area is that once a Christian knows his or her treasure and we've got the gospel treasure, that leads us into what Jesus calls the parable of the sower, which is motivation number two for the kingdom. And here's what it is. Prepare for the diversity of the task. Here's what I mean. The task is very diverse because look at verse one with me in your Bible and let's follow this. Now everyone stay with me because we're gonna read the parable and then read its interpretation. Here's what Jesus tells us. He says, again, he began to teach by the sea and a very large crowd gathered around Jesus. So he got into a boat on the sea and he sat down while the whole crowd was on the shore facing the sea. You could almost call it a floating pulpit, amen? He was out in the water preaching while they were on the side. Here's what he says. He says to them, he taught them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, this occurred. Some seed fell among, along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And it sprang up right away since it did not have deep soil. When the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it didn't have a root, it withered. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it did not produce a crop. Still other seed, others fell on good ground and produced a crop that increased 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. Then he said, anyone who has ears to hear should listen. This is a very important point. For this crop that fell on good soil to go 30, 60, 100 times, that is the equivalent of basically how much the yield was of the crop. In a Jewish day, it was common to have a yield of 8 to 1, maybe 10 to 1 for a fine crop. 30, 60, 100 is just off the charts, y'all, like no one's heard of it. That's how much the good crop should be pouring out in the life of a person like this. That leads us to the interpretation. And here's what he says in verse 13. Everybody look at this. Then he said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any of the parables? In other words, this is pretty foundational. The sower sows the word. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word immediately, they receive it with joy, but they have no root in themselves. They are short-lived. When pressure or persecution comes because of what? Because of the word, they immediately stumble. Others are sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the seduction of wealth, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But the ones sown on good ground are those who hear the word, welcome it, and produce a crop 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. What we see here from the Lord Jesus is we see why the motivation for the kingdom to a believer 
is that there's a diverse task ahead of us. We've got a treasure. No quit, no, no question. We've been given the secret of the kingdom. We've been given the treasure of the gospel. So we have it, but Jesus says from this treasure, be ready. You're going to have to go out. You're going to sow the gospel. This is the kind of world we're living in. This is the kind of heart you're going to face. And when this happens, Jesus here is very obviously clear. He's not impressed with large crowds. He wants disciples. He doesn't want a fan club. He wants people who are going to follow him with all their heart. So when a farmer planted the seed to produce a crop, the soil in Israel had a lot of obstacles to plow through. And, and what we see here first is you had some hard places from foot traffic. You also had limestone under the rock of the surface. You had some weed-like thorny briars that you had to compete with in the soil as well. So good soil can't produce a good crop if it's mixed with bad contaminants. That's why Hosea the prophet would say this statement in chapter 10 and verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground. For it's time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness upon you. In the parable here that we've been given, we learn this. Repentance from sin is the right response to the gospel. Every time. But this is not the norm because most of the world around us is infected with the depravity of pride. Lost people are infected with pride and love of money and stuff. And so the broad road looks a lot more attractive than the narrow road. And that's why many go this direction. So this makes our task of spreading the gospel of Jesus very, very diverse. Because Jesus says, hey, get ready. When you tell people about Christ, you're going to encounter four kinds of hearts, four types of soil. And he told us in the parable, this is kind of what they translate out to be. First of all, you've got the hard heart. And the hard heart, as he said here, is the one Satan finds a seed, snatches it away. This is the person who hears the word of God, but rejects it. They don't want the gospel. They don't even want you to go through the gospel. They're not interested, turn you off hard hearts. There's another soil of a heart that we find, and it is the shallow heart. This is the person that actually enthusiastically and emotionally responds to the gospel. They say yes to Jesus. But here's what happens. They do so without repentance. Their heart has not yet changed. They have not turned in repentance to Christ. And so what happens in this situation is they don't count the cost to follow Christ. They have no root in Christ, no system in Christ, no root system in Christ. And so whenever they have to live according to the word of God, they turn away, they fall away, they walk away because it's difficult. And the difficulties according to the word, they're not interested in that. So they fall, they, they go away. And then you have the person with a crowded heart. This is someone else who responds to the gospel, but not without repentance because he or she actually loves the cares of this world, the pleasure and love of money and stuff. And they are interested in Christ being Lord of their life. They just want to add Jesus to their life conveniently, not out of selling out and following him with all their heart. This person is basically struggling like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and he was wanting to follow Christ, but he wasn't wanting to leave his lifestyle and the things of his wealth and things. And he's torn between the two and he walks away. It's a picture of a crowded heart. And in this situation here, what happens is that 
the result is that the gospel gets choked out of producing any fruit in the life of this person. I like the way William Law said it years ago. He said, if you have not chosen the kingdom of God first, it will in the end make no difference what you have chosen instead. So for the hard and the shallow and the crowded heart, it's somebody who's very maybe potentially interested in Christ, but on their terms, on their own agenda. And that's what leads us here to Jesus says, when you go out, you got the gospel treasure, go out with it, but get ready for four types of soils you're gonna find. I'm looking for, as he says here, the fruitful heart. This is the person who responds to the gospel in repentance from a shallow, crowded heart to follow Christ because they will bear fruit and yield the crop or the lifestyle of a continuously changed life. Saved by Jesus last Tuesday, still saved and serving Jesus 10 years later. Amen? It's because the gospel has transformed them. They don't have to be babysat. They don't have to be told or forced into serving God. They desire because they've been changed from the inside out. And they produce 30, 60, 100. So what Jesus is saying to us in the parables here is simply telling this. He says, hey guys, I gave you the secret to the kingdom. Announce the treasure you've been given. But as you go out with the treasure you've been given, you're going to have a diversity of tasks of sowing the seed of the gospel. Some people are going to be hard-hearted. Some are going to be shallow. Some are going to be crowded. And then you're going to have some that say, yes, in repentance, I want Christ, change my life. And they bear evidence in their life continuously that Jesus has saved them. But when this happens, that leads to motivation number three. A laborer of Christ sharing the gospel like you and I should be doing is we've got the treasure. We're going to face a diversity of tasks and that leads to number three's motivation. And it makes sense because sharing the gospel consistently will be tested. And here's what I mean by that. Look at verse 21 in your Bible and catch this. He also said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? I think the obvious answer is no. That does the bed basket no good, right? We need light in the room. So we ask the next question. Isn't it to be put on a lampstand? And the obvious answer is yes. But here's what he says. For nothing is concealed except to be revealed and nothing hidden except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, he should listen. Then he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. By the measure you use, it will be measured and added to you. For to the one who has, it will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. It's very interesting in the context of this passage, this falls right behind the parable of the sower after it was explained. You can almost see the connecting dots that are being made between the disciples and Jesus. Jesus is basically telling them in so many words, hey guys, that treasure I gave you, awesome, isn't it? Yeah, the soils you're gonna find in this world, yeah, be ready. You're gonna have some really unique hearts, but there's some good crop out there. There's some people that will respond to the gospel in God's time. And when they're saved, they're gonna produce incredible fruit for me and evidence of my life changed inside of them. But since out of four soils, 75% of them, the majority, aren't interested. So when you go out to the world, you're going to get discouraged. You might lose heart on occasion. You might stop sharing the gospel consistently. 
just because of frustration of how many people aren't being saved or want Christ to save them. So you know what? When you use this lamp, what's it good for? And he uses the illustration here to go into this understanding. Because back in that day and time, as we understood a lamp in a common Palestinian home, the lamp was just a clay bowl filled with oil and a wick. And obviously it was used at night, not in the day. You didn't put it under something and hide it. You put it on top of something so it would give out as much light as possible. He's looking at the disciples in context of the parable of the sower. And this is kind of what we conclude. He's telling them, guys, do not hide your light. Know that I gave you the treasure. And just because a lot of folks aren't interested in the gospel, it doesn't mean that I need you to hide the light you've been given. I need you to make sure that you keep shining, that you keep on, even if it's for one person out of a hundred, the one, I still go after the one and leave the 99 behind. I care for the one. I want to reach even the one. And the idea and the understanding here is what we remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says this in verse 3. But if our gospel is veiled, hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of Christ, should shine upon them. So whenever I go out and I, let's just say on a daily basis, we get up at this time, we go to bed at this time, and let's say that throughout the course of the day, we actually had human interaction conversations, some for three seconds, some for two minutes, some for ten. And in our conversations, how is it, it's baffling, that the course of an entire day, we could have met intersected with 18 different people, and in the entire day, go to bed and never have shared the gospel, not even a smidgen of it, with one of those conversations. And the next day, do it all over again. Before long, a believer gets stuck in a rut. And they're going through a cycle where they're really good at attending church and they're serious about loving and serving Jesus in their heart. But the actual manifestation of the kingdom, being intentional with conversations and sowing seed and depositing whatever you can with whatever you're given, that's where we get into a crisis mode. And the gospel gets veiled. We've got it, but it's not disclosed in those times. And what happens is that, and I have done this too often to admit, and I get stuck in this as well. It's very easy to get busy. It's very easy to get involved and kind of doing our thing, but we've got to be sensitive to the fact that, God, I've got a mission. And I'm on your mission today if I am yours. Because it would make no sense to be on a different mission than that of Christ, right? And if this is his mission, it should be mine. So if it's not mine, I just need to repent and turn from that and get back to what he wants me to be doing with the time I have breath to do it. And the reality that we see in this is simply that those lost in darkness to those we are the lamp with the light of the gospel. In Matthew 4, he says, a people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. Author and theologian N.T. Wright made a statement years ago I love the way he said it. He said, simply put, the whole point of the kingdom of God is that Jesus has come to bear witness to the truth. When God wants to take charge of the world, he does not send in tanks. He sends in the poor and the meek. And that's what we've got. Is the gospel comes in that way. And so the urgency of verse 24 and 25 in your text is that Jesus is saying, hey guys, 
I gave you the treasure. You've got a diverse task of a lot of different soil out there of hearts. Stay consistent with shining your light because to whom my much is given, much is required. What you've been measured is measured back to you. In other words, as I've given you truth, you are to bear witness to the truth. As I've taught you the word, you are to give the word. It never becomes hoarded. It doesn't get put on a shelf. It's not a decorative spirituality piece we shine in front of church people. It is actually every day we live, we have insight and wisdom into the gospel in such a way that the more we are given, the more we are to give. That's what verse 24 and 25 is saying. He's saying, pay attention. Watch this. Take heed to it. It's Jesus' way of saying, if I've given you this much, I'm expecting you to give that away. Don't hide it. Let the light shine. Amen. So in that parable, it leads us to this this fourth motivation that we find here in the text. And the fourth motivation here is very obvious. In verse 26, we're going to find that it is to trust God to germinate the gospel seed on his time. Oh, yes. There's a time involved here, and it's always under the sovereign care and guidance of Almighty God. And here's what he says. Look at verse 26, and look at the context here. He says, the kingdom of God is like this. He said, a man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He does not know how. The soil produces a crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, and then the ripe grain on the head. But as soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. Wow. In this parable, the very obvious thing that we see together is that we see here the responsibility is given to actually scatter or spread the seed. Notice this. There is no responsibility given to the sower to grow it. It's going to grow according to the nature of what's in the seed. The sower is to get it out, spread it, faithfully give it away. But someone else is growing it. It's like Paul told the Corinthian church, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. It comes from God. And the big picture here is because the soil produces a crop. Notice this word, by itself. In that New Testament language time, that word actually literally translated without visible cause. Our English word automatic comes from this derivative of this word. So in other words, someone else is doing this. Time allows for growth to happen in successive stages. The blade and then the head and then the grain. He says simply for one purpose, right? Did you catch it? And then the sickle comes in. And then you go forth and you get the harvest. The big picture that Christ is saying here is the end result. He's not interested in just planning to plant. He doesn't just want to say we planted so much and I grew so much and look how beautiful and tall it is. Isn't that great? But instead he says, what are we doing with this? He says, because there's a harvest. In other words, you're going to reap what's been sown. And Jesus is all about the harvest. That's why he said to us in Matthew chapter 9, looking at a crowd and saying, "Mm, they're weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And he says these words in Matthew 9. 
37. To the disciples, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What that tells you and I, in this context as well, on any given day, spreading the gospel will always produce some kind of harvest. I don't know when and you don't know when, but I guarantee you this, the gospel is fail safe. The gospel will never fail. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ will always prevail even against the gates of hell. Jesus is Lord of his church. He is the head of his church. And when his gospel seed goes out, it's going to always bring about a harvest in God's time and in God's way. Oz Guinness made a statement about that. He said, Jesus made it clear that the kingdom of God is organic, not organizational. It grows like a seed, secretly, invisibly, surprisingly, and irresistibly. Every day we step out into this world we live in, everybody's... Listen to this, I mean, this is just reality, right? I have no way of knowing how many people that I talk to and you talk to that have been deposited gospel seed into their life when I meet them. I have no idea. I have no idea the germination process of growing the seed that God is doing. And the day that I share the gospel with them, I am watering the seed that's been sown. I'm I'm participating as a laborer in the harvest. And if this person is not born again, that means I was a part of what God had me do. God has been preparing people to be saved. The Lord is working in so many people's lives around us. We don't even know. And what we do is we go out in every conversation, everything we do. It's about saying, I live for the kingdom. And I'm either sowing today or I'm reaping today. I don't know what God's gonna be doing, but I'm doing one or the other. I was at Sutherland's the other day and I was getting some building supplies and building my kids a tree house and, and I had a chance to share the gospel with a guy that was in the, the yard outside. And anyway, we had a great conversation and I had to go back a couple days and get some more supplies. And I, I was out doing that and he found me. He chased me down, he came to me and he said, hey, 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 mister, can you come here? I said, yeah, I remember talking to you. He says, yeah, let me tell you something. Do you know that after you left, somebody else came up and shared the whole gospel with me the same day? I said, really? I said, that means that I am serving a God who sends out laborers into his harvest, amen? And I was grateful for that. It was a reminder, the fact that there's other people doing the same thing. We are to be collectively and cooperatively engaged in the gospel. One sows another reaps, but both are rejoicing together. And so the big picture there is that. And I wanna encourage you today to think about those things on those terms and to recognize that, man, every day you and I go somewhere, the people we talk to, we have no idea in the sovereign knowledge of God who he's been preparing to be saved. And God sovereignly lets us cross paths with them, talk to them. And if we've only got 10 seconds, that's 10 seconds for the kingdom's sake we didn't have until God crossed our paths. And so we use whatever we got and we move on. Whatever we have and we move on. And we just stay on mission for the King of kings and Lord of lords because he's the God of his harvest. I don't know about you, but I would not want to show up to work 
in front of my boss and not be found working? How about you? I think we all would say when the boss is around, we kind of really want to make sure that we're doing those things. And when he's not around, we should be too. But the point is, is that it would just be crazy to go into the world every day to not share the gospel and know that the Christ and Lord of Harvest expects us to. So what we want to do as a church, as individual Christians, we want to be able to say, you know what? I'm on mission for the King of Heaven. And I'm so glad I am. That leads us to the final and fifth motivation. In the text... It's right here as we get over here to the final one, the fifth one. And it's simply going to be this. Love the endless possibilities of God's tiny. You might say, God's tiny. What what is this? Well, Jesus gives us this last parable in this text about a mustard seed. And we'll find right here in verse 30 what he says. So let's read that together. And he said, how can we illustrate the kingdom of God? Or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that when sown in the soil is smaller than all the seeds on the ground. And when sown, it comes up, grows tall, taller than all the vegetables and and produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. This understanding of a mustard seed is something we might be a little familiar with. We're going to see a picture here in a moment, and basically there's no better analogy by Jesus to describe how the kingdom expands within a Palestinian garden mustard seed among the Jews. What you see here is you see how tiny it is. It's extremely small. This is only some of which there could be more. But I want to give you a perspective of this. This is how small it is. It takes 750 mustard seeds to equal one gram. It takes 28 grams to equal one ounce. So while that is extremely tiny and amazing, yet in only about three weeks, that mustard seed can turn into a plant that will grow up to be 15, up to 15 feet in height. And birds of the air can nest in the branches that Jesus said. In other words, it's profound how God does something so, something so big with something so tiny. And that's what he says the kingdom of God is like. Hey, I'll get 12 guys. One's going to betray me. The 11 I'll use. I'll call Matthias, replace Judas. And and by the time we get to the book of Acts, the whole church is going to explode. I'm going to take 12 folks, one walk away, another replace, and then set the whole world on fire with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? God starts off with a little bit, but little is much when God's in it. And he expands it. And so every time... A small deposit of the kingdom, sir, have a blessed day. God bless you, friend. Anything we can do to just know that the presence of God, the kingdom of God has been around in conversations and people we meet, we walk away from them whatever time we've got with them. And we are making some kind of effort to reach forth with the kingdom within us to give them something to hang on to and to stir their heart and mind to think about versus just the casual, have a good day, see you later, nice talking to you. Let's leave them with something that goes over what the world can give them. Let's leave them with these things. That's how tiny God can take and bless in that kind of way. So in Luke 18, 27, he makes a statement. What is impossible with men is possible with God. You believe it? Amen. What is impossible with men 
is possible with God. The gospel is God's hope to all human impossibilities that are faced. The gospel is always going to be what people don't know they're looking for. And they're trying to find it in other things, in other places, in other relationships. But it comes down that sin has wrecked our hearts. And we're all just in a circle of a mass confusion. And basically everybody dies in the end. And then, and then life would have been lived for what? For what purpose? A lot of people ask, what am I here for? What am I doing? It's because deep inside the creator that created them wants to know them and them know him. And it's through his son, Jesus Christ. We have been given the treasure of the gospel. Amen. Amen. And with the treasure, we are excitedly to go out into this world and go, man, I have what people need. Let me use my every breath to exist for the glory of God. I have what people need now. And then... I get faced with the reality, oh, wow, not everybody wants the gospel. I've got four soils, four hearts, and I realize I've got a diverse task ahead of me. Okay, Jesus, you told me I need to stay consistent. I need to be ready to be tested and getting, not lose heart and get discouraged. I need to stay true to sharing the gospel because I have the light. I don't want to hide it. And so, God, as I do, I'll just do it and know that whenever I am doing it, you're the Lord of your harvest and you're going you're gonna to germinate everything I do. So let me stay consistent. Let me keep sharing, Lord, to the day you come, Jesus, or the day you call me home. Let me just keep on going. And Lord, even when I want to say, this isn't much. I didn't have a lot of time to talk to that guy. I didn't, I didn't have a chance to really go into much of the gospel with this girl. The tininess. God uses even this mustard seed to illustrate. This is the God we serve. He is the God that can take a tiny little bit of five loaves and and two fish and feed thousands with a little. He's the God that can take a widow's two meager coins and say she gave more than everybody. He's the God that we serve that, that uses a small staff in the hand of a man named Moses and will split the Red Sea in half, y'all. He is the God that I'm talking about that can take a little jawbone of a donkey in the man of a man, hand of a man named Samson. And he can take out a thousand Philistines. He's the God that can take five smooth rocks in the hands of David. And he can tell Goliath, let me tell you who the God of Israel is and who's in charge. This is our God, amen? And so with that being said, he is the God who can defeat an army of thousands with a tiny little man squad posse of 300 by the man, by the man, a man named Gideon. Little. In the scriptures that God uses. And yet he does incredible things with even those things. You know what that tells us? Here we are. We've got the treasure. And man, we've got some tasks ahead of us. And the soil of this world of the hearts of men and women, men and women, boy and girl, is going to be very diverse. But as we keep going forth, we got a light of the gospel. Don't stop shining it. Let's go forth in that reality and continue in that and keep remembering that, God, this task is diverse, but you've given it to me. And I want to make sure that I trust in your power to germinate the seed that you are in charge of, not me. I just keep spreading it. And Lord, even with the kingdom, the tiniest things of your kingdom, the smallest deposits of your kingdom I can make, you are still the God of the impossible. I believe you for that. So you know what? The kingdom of God is available to each of us in the here and the now. But the question remains, are we available to the kingdom?
I love the way the late R.C. Sproul said it. He said, the only way the kingdom of God is going to be manifested in this world is if we manifest it by the way we live as citizens of heaven and subjects of the king. It all comes down to that fact, doesn't it? It comes down to where we are right now in this moment, where we need to be. And I want to say to you today, for some listening right now, you may be broken, confused, lost without Christ, wandering through life with a hard heart, a shallow heart, a crowded heart. And understand that if the heart is hard, you've heard the gospel maybe, but you've turned it away. Maybe you're here today and that's been the case. Today I pray you won't turn it away again. And Maybe you've been trying to say yes to Christ, but your heart's been shallow. Maybe you've wanted Jesus on your terms, but you just need to be able to say to Jesus un- unconditionally, you are mine, I surrender to you. And if your heart is crowded because you've got some competition going on on the inside, You really do want to give your life to Christ. You've been drawn maybe to some degree, but you're struggling deep inside letting go of the things of this world. You just seem to want to, you're struggling with that. And today you're at the crossroad. Let me tell you, the answer to a shallow, hard, crowded heart is this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, conquered it for you. Believe, listen to me, there is nothing in this world worth hanging on to that a man would gain the world and then lose his soul. It's not worth that. The gospel is your answer. But for others that are already saved, you know Christ. Perhaps you just need a reviving of your hearts reviving of your heart to be awakened a little bit more serious to the Lord's harvest. To start looking at the conversations you're going to have today and tomorrow and into the week. And start not looking at people as just people, but look at them and see the eternity in their face. See there's eternity in their soul. Recognize that God's giving you this moment with them. And as you talk with them, start intentionally depositing any amount of the gospel you can on purpose every encounter God lets you cross paths with people and be sensitive to that Christ bled for these people and he's letting us talk to them may God help us in that so you know today we've got a responsibility to the kingdom in the midst of Mark 4 we want to walk out of here being able to say God I'm more motivated now than ever for the kingdom of God I want to be motivated to be sensitive to what you've given and what you've called me to. Today, if there's any of us that are just lost without Christ, I'll be happy to talk with you about how to be saved and and, and to to repent and give your life to Christ. We have other pastors here present that can also visit. But if you're just the believer here today that simply is saying, I'm kind of stuck. I'm kind of stuck. I'm not engaged as much in the kingdom mission as I need to be. I know I need to be. But I'm really passing up a lot of conversations daily on with people. I should be, I could be telling more about Jesus. I could be being more intentional. If that's you, my friend, know this. He loves you where you are, but not enough to leave us where we are. He wants to call us into deeper obedience with him today. If that's you, 
That's me. Let's walk toward him in that way, okay? Pray with me as we prepare for this time of invitation. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, I thank you for saving me from the wretchedness of my sin and gave me a relationship with you through Jesus. I thank you that's the testimony of many here today as well. So Lord God Almighty, this is your invitation time. This is your time with our hearts. So God, you work in the way that gives you glory due to your name. We trust in you. I pray that you strengthen, you encourage all who are here. Anyone barely hanging on, anyone losing hope, God, bring us towards you in this manner with the gospel. And Jesus, you will be king and throne in our hearts. Have your way, Lord. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's all stand at this time if you would.